Welcome to Reader's Digress, the podcast where we read nonfiction books so that you don't have to, unless you want to. I'm Kate. And I'm Molly. And today we're discussing On Writing, A Memoir of the Craft by Stephen King. I'm so excited because I love Stephen King. I haven't read any books by him other than this one. (laughs) (laughs) Love that. Uh, I know that horror is not your favorite genre. Uh, I I personally love it. Good horror, bad horror, I will watch it all because it's if it's good, then that's great. And if it's bad, it's a comedy. So it's like, you win either way, you know? Yeah. I wish that I could do it more. Um, you told me once that your favorite, maybe your favorite book by Stephen King was Misery. Yes, yes, it is. And I went online and read the synopsis, and I was like, I literally would not have been able to get through this book. <laughs> like, I couldn't do it. And I get too scared. Like, I want to be scared by a movie, and then I get yeah. too scared, and I can't function for days on end. <laughs> so, ugh, I wish I could be... I, it's like... The most I can do is, like, a good thriller, which is pathetic. Ooh, yeah. I'm like, ooh, let's look at a thriller. You taken know, like, Taken. <laughs> and it's still almost too much for me to take. <laughs> taken with Taken. Yeah, I uh, love Stephen King, and we'll go to bat for him. I know a lot of people, like, think that horror is a genre that's not. I don't get that, because it's so ele- it can be so elegant. It's such a thrill. Also, I think says a lot about us as a society the things that we fear and how we react to that and how we cope with trauma and with Stephen King's book specifically he often will explore how the characters are reacting to the trauma that they experience so for people who've read it uh, the first half is about them going into the sewers with this evil clown (laughs) But the second half is all about them as adults, like, experiencing this trauma. So, like, he he does work with that a lot, which I find very interesting because it turns it a little bit more into a character study, which I really yeah. love. Yeah. Well, I think the the reason society is like, ooh, whore, whatever, it's so base, is because they consider it not intellectual. But I think so much of whore is, and a lot of the way Stephen King writes it certainly is, so. Yeah. Yeah, horror is intellectual. Horror. I got told in grad school <laughs> once that I don't pronounce. So, like, words like terror and mm-hmm. horror, I pronounce it, like, tear and horror. Oh, yeah. And I that, thought that was normal. I think that's but a Midwestern accent. It must be. Because in grad school, someone was, like, we w- we kept talking about the terror of the French Revolution, which was, like, the period mm-hmm. where everyone's heads were being cut off. And I just referred to it as the terror. And I can hear it. I can hear that other R in there. Jeez. But someone finally <laughs> brought it up and they were like, you say it like it's a, a whore, like a whorehouse, or you're tearing a page. And I was like, ah, no, I don't. I mean, I, I do, do, but shut up. <laughs> yeah. And the more I thought about it, the more I was like, well, I guess I do, but I can hear that like dropped R in there. So I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. About it. Yeah. All right. Well, before we get to the summary, I want to remind everyone to please subscribe to our pod, rate and review it, suggest it to both your friends and your enemies. Absolutely. Uh, and then also please 
follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We where we are now. I will end. I'll, I'm going to put like a drum roll in here. <laughs> Readers <laughs> underscore pod, which is so much easier to say in an audio format. Yes. Thank you. Not Bobby. as clever. Not as intellectual. Per, perhaps. Perhaps. <laughs> you know me, an intellectual. <laughs> uh, you know but. me, the smartest person <laughs> in every room. You know. So today, as Molly mentions, we are talking about On Writing, A Memoir of the Craft by Stephen King. Stephen King is a prolific writer and probably one of the most well-known American authors of our time. His work includes the books Carrie, Misery, It, The Outsider, Mr. Mercedes, The Stand, Salem's Lot, and The Shining, among many others. On Writing was published in 2000 and begins by telling the story of his passion and love for writing throughout small moments in his life. The core of the book, however, is a high-level how-to guide on what makes fiction work. He touches on writer's tools, vocabulary, grammar, and the elements of style, and offers guidance on the writing process from story ideation to character development and the rewriting process. Above all, he champions honest storytelling and lots of practice. If you want to be a writer, he advised you must do two things above all others, read a lot and write a lot. Nice. Uh, speaking of the fact that this was published in 2000, I feel like you can really tell. This felt like an I know. old book. I, I was know. like, oh, God, stop reminding me that it was 20 years ago. <laughs> that- well, all of his um, allusions to writing on a typewriter, I was like, I oh, right. And, like, even <laughs> the, like, the memoir part of it, it was like, yeah, we're talking about the 60s and the 70s. Of course it's old. But then he's talking about his current day. And he mentions at one point, like, a new stack of floppy disks. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, yeah. oh, my God. So, yep. yeah, there was a lot that I was like, whoa, this is old. He also um, has a couple of different spots in the actual process part of the book where he says like go to my website or this website and do this thing and I was like I guarantee you that stuff is not still on those websites like, yes I thought the same thing and I kind of wanted to try it I, I didn't I should have yeah. checked that before we started recording uh but we will put it in the show notes and you can check yeah. yourselves <laughs> yeah but I have to imagine that those uh urls have lapsed by this point I like I, I can't imagine he kept the domain the domain name just to see people's like fake assignments that he gives them in this book yeah for 20 years so i thought that was interesting it was like a weird kind of collapse of longevity where it was like you as a writer must think that this will go on forever since you're so famous but you're also doing it in this way that's like this won't be good after five years it was so interesting yeah yeah but but I guess also, sorry, I just yelled that so loudly, the, the internet wasn't as fast paced then as it is now. So maybe that wasn't, they didn't have that sense of like, there will be a new TikTok that everyone's talking about every five minutes and then we forget about it. So yeah, information moves so much differently now, that mm-hmm. it is kind of hard to know how he expected this to be received yeah. years after he wrote it. Yeah. Uh, no, nevertheless, I did really like it and mm-hmm. uh, found mm-hmm. it very interesting. So I'm yeah. looking forward to hearing your key takeaway. Yeah, shall, okay, I'll start then. Yes. So for my key takeaway, I was struck throughout both the memoir piece and the process piece of the book about how the the nature of writing 
when it comes to memoir, it seems really obvious that it's personal. <laughs> but as he talks about writing fiction and all that goes into making a writer, it started to be really apparent that all writing, no matter what it is, because you are writing it out of your own experiences and emotions and the things you know about and and the things you enjoy, it's all really personal. So mm, yeah, it, my takeaway is that the nature of writing and editing and all of that is deeply personal from subject, style, approach, and process. And I will talk more about this later, but a lot of the way he describes his process and how one should go about writing, I, I wouldn't go so far to say as I disagree with a lot of it, but I have a much different approach for myself. Mm-hmm. And I definitely don't think that the way he talks about it is the only way to do it. Mm, and he yeah. says that too, but... So I just thought it was really interesting how all every aspect of writing is so personal from what you write about to how you do it. Mm-hmm. I definitely picked up on that throughout the book, but probably wouldn't have articulated it in that way. So I think that's a really important part of what he's talking about here is mm-hmm. like more or less getting to know yourself as a writer, right? Yeah. Like that's a huge part of it is like, how do you work well? What does that process look like for you, both in terms of logistics and in terms of, I don't know, for lack of a better word, like brainstorming and Mm -hmm. coming up with ideas and things like that? I found it fascinating that at one point he does talk about the book Misery, and he says that he came up with the idea for the book while he was uh, dreaming on a plane. I know. And obviously, that is not replicable, right? Like, no one can Mm -hmm. be like, oh okay, so I just follow this process and take naps and I'll always come up with great story yeah. ideas. Yeah. Uh, so something like that is very personal and he's just describing how it worked for him, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think he talks about this a little bit and actually those were some of the parts that I felt like I had the most issue with in the book where he talks mm-hmm. about the magic of it, how it's like you can do all of these things and you still might not be a good writer and that's just kind of... And I I agree with that in some ways, but I didn't love the way he approached it. Um, I thought it was a little bit narrow-minded. But I think that example demonstrates it. Like, he was just dreaming and he had this great idea. So good luck trying to write a book on how to do that. That You can't. Right, right. No one can replicate that without luck and their brain being like a similar kind of creative mind, you know? Right, yeah. I was listening to a podcast that you might also listen to called Why Are Dads? And Mm -hmm. it is uh, Alex Deed and Sarah Marshall, both of whom I think are journalists. And they talk about the depiction of fathers in popular culture, mainly through movies. And they were discussing uh, The Shining And one of the things that they had talked about (laughs) that I think is perhaps the most perfect distillation of Stephen King's stories is that Stephen King has two types of stories. And the first is Stephen King had a cool idea. And the second is Stephen King is telling on himself. And you can slot any of his ideas into one of those two categories. (laughs) And I really (laughs) will carry that with me forever because it's so true. Um, you know, Misery and The Shining obviously being, like, the ones that are most well-known when he's telling on himself. Yeah. And then, like, it, you know, completely just detached from everything. Yeah. Just a cool idea. 
totally. <laughs> and that he's like using his experiences from like childhood and stuff to mm-hmm. like set the stage and create the scenery and all that. But it's not like, yeah, this is this is kind of my like fears or desires or yeah. you know whatever internal <laughs> world. Oh, that's yeah. funny. Yeah, that's cool. Okay, so what's your key takeaway? Uh, so I am not someone who's ever tried to publish my writing. I always loved writing fiction when I was younger. I still think it's a very fun activity for me personally, but I'm not trying to become an author. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the thing that I took away from it, a specific to writing fiction, is that you don't have to have the story complete when you sit down to write. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's one of the things that seems the most intimidating to me as somebody who's not a writer who is, you know, creating fiction works and trying to get published is this mm-hmm. that uh, he describes that a lot of his fiction uh, is starting with characters in a situation and then mm-hmm. it unravels from there. And he gives this visual of a metaphor of unearthing a fossil. And I thought that was a great analogy and like very accessible. It made it sound a lot more achievable mm-hmm. because it was kind of like, you, you don't have to know every last detail of an outline when you sit down to write. Like some people mm-hmm. may do that, but you don't have to, right? Like you may just be able to like get to know the characters and then just be true to them as you're going. Yeah, I, I did really enjoy the way he talked about the process of how he develops and completes a story mm-hmm. because I think that is probably the most mystifying part of writing I don't think we've talked about this yet but I do write and I although I have never like published anything in a at first I thought you were saying that directly to me and I was like what are you talking oh, no. about <clears throat> of course Sorry. I know that <laughs> can you imagine if no. I was like you're, you're a writer you write what <laughs> to the audience of this podcast I do not believe we have talked about the fact that I write things. I haven't had anything published that was like long form. I've had some poetry published. Um, a lot of that is because it's really intimidating to submit your work for publication and uh, I do it sparingly and uh, that's a, a, a big uh, no-no if you're trying to be published, FYI. Like you can't be if you don't submit your work. <gasps> Note to self, Fair. Fair. <laughs> yelling at myself <laughs> in the mirror. Um, but when I write like a longer form piece, I definitely don't know, even though, okay, with memoir, you're cheating because you do know what happened. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. But you can't write everything that ever happened to you down in like a interesting story that someone wants to read. Sure. So I do understand that thing that he's describing where like, usually it starts for me with like a single line or like a single memory or emotion Mm -hmm. and it it goes from there and I don't necessarily know what the larger picture is until I've like finished it um and it all seems to make perfect sense when it's done but it's like wow I didn't have any idea that was gonna come from this like one initial thought that I had yeah absolutely and in terms of him talking about writing as magic I think what you're describing um in that way of thinking about writing as magical as like you can create something that maybe you Mm -hmm. weren't even able to articulate that that's what you were doing until you were done with it is like an amazing thing that humans can do. And I love that. Like I thought him talking about his love for creating stories was really beautiful. 
Yeah, um, and I think that it, like you said, it does make it a little bit more accessible or less intimidating because if you think that the only way people write stories, fiction or nonfiction, is by knowing everything that they wanted to say before they sat down to do it, no, you, of course, you would never try to start because you'll never, that is not how people write. I don't think it's how, like, any successful person really, like, you might have an idea of where you want to start and where you want to end, but nobody knows everything they're going to put down on paper before they start doing it. So if you feel like you have to have it that fleshed out before you even begin, good luck. Yeah. At one point in the book, he described how the symbolism and the themes of the book are the very last thing that he tries to bring out in his writing. And I thought that was a fascinating way of of looking at it that like just write what you're gonna write and then go back and reread it and upon your reread you can say like oh you know these things really connect uh I think this is what I'm trying to say and you can kind of heighten the scenes in the book where those themes are coming out or you can try to thread more in or whatever Mm -hmm. makes sense but Mm -hmm. the idea of doing that on the rewrite as opposed to having a big theme and then trying to distill it down scene by scene. Like, of course, that makes way more sense to do it the opposite way than to try to inject the theme into every chapter, because of course that's not going to work. You know, that's way too much. Well, and he, he says many times that, um, it starts with a story or like you have to go back to the story or I don't remember how he says it exactly, but it's like, it's about the story that you're telling, not about the theme. And all of that stuff is just extra. Like even the characters that you're developing don't develop them so much that you lose sight of the story that you're telling or like the descriptions that you're giving of the scenes. Like you need to tell a story. So don't let that get lost. And I think if when people go to write anything, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, because either they have like one specific like point or like, lesson or metaphor that they want it all to like wrap up into and mm-hmm. they're working towards that instead of telling a compelling story you can tell it's like oh wow you made it like yeah yeah it just does it's more hollow yeah because it's like a platitude instead of a story yeah i think it falls flat a lot of the time and that was a very insightful thing to like what i felt like was in the book is to just mm-hmm. recognize that if you start from the premise of your theme, you lose like everything else, right? Mm-hmm. So if you have the story to guide you and that's the most important thing that you're doing, then everything yeah. else can sort of fall into place underneath it. Yeah, and I like we have these subconscious things that will direct us and I think they operate best when you're not focusing on them. So if you focus on the story, you will subconsciously be working stuff in not necessarily knowing that what you're doing. And then, like he said, when you do the reread, you get that sense of like, oh yeah, that does connect to this. And like, I do see this larger thing developing Mm -hmm. here and you can start to pull it out. Um, But if you're focusing on it, that kind of natural process doesn't work as well. It's kind of like if someone, for me, if someone asks me like, what comes after L in the alphabet? It's like, I have to really think about it. And it's easier for me to just do the alphabet, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like LMNOP, that one was easy. I should have picked a harder one. <laughs> like, <laughs> there are certain letters that if someone asks me that, I'm like, I don't fucking know. I have to sing the song, okay? So it's like that, where it's like, if you, if you think about it, it makes it harder. <laughs> yeah. No, for sure. I agree with that. I also think that it's 
more likely to produce something where it feels like you're trying too hard. Yeah. And if you're focusing too much on theme, which ultimately may not even be that compelling, you know, yeah. like, okay, so your themes are life and death, for example. Okay, well, everybody's so written about everything. that, right? Yeah. So like what you need to be unique and compelling and mm-hmm. different than everybody else in the world who's ever written about life and death is to have this really good story. Yeah, engaging story, engaging mm-hmm. characters. So I agree with that. Do you want to go into quotes? Yeah, let's do it. I started reading this book for the first time back in like 2014 or 2015. And then I got maybe maybe like 80 pages in and stopped for whatever reason. Because I started grad school, if I'm being perfectly honest. Um, that is and, always a good reason to yeah, describe why you quit anything. Give up. Including self-care, showering, <laughs> whatever. It's like while I was in grad school. Oh, oh that makes sense. Yeah. But I remember this line. It stuck with me ever since I started reading this book. And I was pleased to find that it it hit just as well the second time around years later. Um, And he's just talking. It's in the memoir section of the book. And he's describing um, just after he has met his wife. And so he's describing that relationship a little bit. And he says, we came from different religions, but as a feminist, Tabby has never been crazy about the Catholics, where the men make the rules, including the God-given directive to always go in bareback, and the women wash the underwear. That, first of all, that's a perfect sentence. This is the quote that really hit me, though. And while I believe in God, I have no use for organized religion. When I first read that, I was still deeply organized in my religion. And I have since <laughs> left it organized. all behind. <laughs> yeah. And I'm pleased to see that that, like, hit me hard then. It hits me hard in a different way of, like, God, yes. We've, we've been on a journey, but here we are. So, yeah, yes. that's, my, that's my favorite line in the whole book. I love that. Yeah. I had a quote from, like maybe the next page or something. I should preface this by saying that I'm not much of a fan girl person. Like I, (laughs) I'm not gonna, you're not gonna see me running like a Stan Twitter account for anyone. (laughs) However, uh, there are people that I respect in their work and admire for everything that they've done. And a lot of them are creatives. But one of the things that I've always admired about Stephen King is that uh, him and his wife, Tabitha King, Uh, have been married now for basically ever and uh, seemingly have a very good relationship. And I think that it comes through in his fiction, which I really love. They're specifically in The Outsider. There's a detective character and he has a wife. And in so many detective dramas, the wife is like the nagging bitch Mm -hmm. that is, you know, why aren't you home more? You know, those sorts of things. She's one of the villains. (laughs) Yeah. She's like a secret villain. That's a perfect way to put it. Uh, And in The Outsider, it's so clear that he understands what a supportive relationship is because he wrote one for his characters. And it's so like beautiful to see. And I appreciate that his female characters are not just... uh, one-dimensional one-dimensional uh women yeah but there's a part in here where he's talking about falling in love with his wife and he describes falling in love with her when they were in a writing workshop and she read a poem of hers and he fell in love with her uh because 
he loved what she was doing with her work and he loved that she knew exactly what she was doing with her work. And there's this paragraph here where he says, I won't try to argue that that poem is a great poem, although I think it's a pretty good one. The point is that it was a reasonable poem in a hysterical time, one sprung from a writing epic that resonated all through my heart and soul. And I really just love that. It's so beautiful to me that he's describing seeing this person and being like, wow, what a beautiful human being. I would love to just be around her all the time and get to know what she thinks about everything. And I just really appreciate that. And I also love that he's pointing out uh, one of the things that she loves, that he loves about her is that she knows who she is and what her work is doing. Mm -hmm. And I think as anybody who is a creative, uh, that's a really admirable thing because it's very hard to know what you want your work to say exactly and how you want it to be received and how you think it's contributing to the wider Mm -hmm. conversation. And so I just love to hear that. Like, that's so cool to me. Yeah. I love that part too. And it was, it is really nice to have that example of a supportive relationship and people that have made it work through a lot of hardship he describes in like the memoir portion of how difficult things were when they were first married, they were poor and it was a lot. They had two kids pretty early. And so it's nice to see difficulty um, bringing people together and being like actual teammates and partners in their lives versus having it like tear them apart and, they turn on each other and like blame each other for the problems, which yeah, I mean sometimes yeah. the other person is to blame. So I'm not like trying to minimize those kinds of things. True, but true. It's nice when you can see like it can work out and <laughs> people can like be good to each other. That's really great. Yeah, yeah. It. I uh, the way he was describing it is how I feel about my husband and I's relationship, which is that there are always going to be hard external things working on your life, Mm -hmm. but it's a true blessing when the hardships are not coming from within. They're not internal struggles between the two of you. It's, it's you two facing this hard world. It's never going to not be a hard world, but it's a very different than having your relationship be the hard thing. Totally. Yes. I I 100% agree. And it sounds very much like that when he writes about his relationship that, it's them facing these external difficulties versus like, and, and even when it was like internal inside the relationship, like he describes a portion of his life where he was like addicted to drugs and alcohol and his wife had to like intervene. And it was really, I'm sure, I'm sure it had been years of struggle for her. It's not like she didn't fucking know that he was an alcoholic writing in the closet. You know what I mean? Like, right. Yeah. She obviously knew. And I'm sure that was. And addicted to Coke. Yeah. It was, was. Yeah. It's yeah. not good. Yeah. So <laughs> it wasn't like a chill, like 1970s alcoholic. It was like, even for the 70s, it was bad. <laughs> 70s and 80s. Um, anyway, it was a legit so, alcoholism. Yes. Yeah. Um, actually, I have a quote about that that I thought, thought was just super funny. Oh, yeah. Um, let me pull it up. So years ago on that podcast, My Favorite Murder, one of the hosts, Karen Kilgariff, she is a... I don't know if you state that they are still an alcoholic, but she used to be an alcoholic. She no longer drinks. She's in recovery. Yeah. Um, 
So she said this thing once about, I don't know where the concept came from. I think it was from like someone she knew who was also recovering. And they made a joke about how like, essentially everyone has a certain amount of alcohol that like we all have the same amount of alcohol that we're allowed to drink in on our entire lives and alcoholics just drank all of theirs faster <laughs> which is so funny like no i just i've I had it all already um so i've always remembered that and then he has this line where he's describing a friend who went to a counselor and the counselor asks his friend how much do you drink and his friend looks at the counselor with disbelief and says all of it which I was just like, yeah, okay, so yeah. that's how you know the difference between yes, us. yes. <laughs> if you're drinking all of it, <laughs> it's a no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I also that is so funny. That line also stood out to me, and I think it's because we so often hear addiction described as something that is. Uh, covering up trauma or a response mm-hmm. to trauma, mm-hmm. which can still totally be true but in this yeah. case. But I don't think that addiction is so often talked about as a compulsion when it's alcohol. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that uh, usually comes up more when you're talking about drug addictions is mm-hmm. people understanding the compulsion and the obsession that comes yeah. along with addiction. And I think that that really illustrated the compulsion of it because he goes on to say that Stephen King would actually pour out any of the beer that was left in his fridge at the end of the night because if he went up to bed and he knew there was still beer in the fridge he would get out of bed and come down and drink the rest of it yeah and I think that that was fascinating to me I've never heard addiction described quite in that way and it was a very clear visual and a clear articulation of Mm -hmm. how that feels yeah and how it you know some people will scoff or roll their eyes at the idea of it being a disease and it's like no you can't control that kind of like compulsion stuff that's happening and people experience it around things like food and stuff too and it's Mm -hmm. so frustrating and it it seems like oh just stop and it's like (laughs) you don't get it yeah i mean (laughs) talking about themes that come up on our podcast it goes back to this terrible american individuality myth Uh, but yes Yes. okay so now we're going to talk about some quotes from his section on on writing so his actual process and methods and the advice he gives and the first one i'm going to read okay so he's talking in this section about adverbs which i think the first person that i recall having a conversation about adverbs with was one of my friends that i met in grad school And I have been writing creatively for probably the last decade or more. And this, it, it's just not something that super occurred to me until she and I had this conversation. I don't think I've ever been much of an adverb stan, if you Mm -hmm. you feel me. Um, But it's one of those things that you can easily remove from your writing to make it better, like 10 times better immediately. It's um, like when someone advises you to write in the active voice instead of yes. passive, and you're like, yes. oh, that changes my writing so much. <laughs> yes. Or, like, he also talks, Stephen King also talks about um, dialogue tags. So he said, she said. And I I don't know if anyone else has noticed this, but when you're reading and it just says he said, she said, you don't even read it. Like, your no. brain just automatically is checking the box. Don't add shit in there. Like, occasionally I will add, like, certain things to spice it up a bit. But it's always, like, 
she said and then there's like some other and like I give some context about how she moved her body or like how what he did with his arms or something it's like I never said he said menacingly like jump off a cliff Ugh. it Please. just it reminds me of the paperback like romance novels like yes. she said sexily and it's like no yes. she didn't she didn't no, she there's didn't. what stop doing that yes. just stop the way he I don't know if he puts it like this exactly but the point if you're writing the reason you don't need adverbs is because you should have already explained that with the writing, not the adverb. So you should already, they should already know that she is being sexy without you having to say that she said it sexily. And if you feel like you must do that, you're not doing your job as a writer very well. She says angrily. She said menacingly. (laughs) Okay, so I'll, I'll read this paragraph he has about adverbs that I found enjoyable. Someone out there is now accusing me of being tiresome and anal retentive. I deny it. I believe the road to hell is paved with adverbs, and I will shout it from the rooftops. (laughs) To put it another way, they're like dandelions. If you have one on your lawn, it looks pretty and unique. If you fail to root it out, however, you will find five the next day. Fifty the day after that. And then, my brothers and sisters, your lawn is totally, completely, and profligately covered with dandelions. By then, you see them for the weeds they really are. By then, it's gasp! too late so i loved that he hammed it up for that description and and it it had that paperback romance flair to it yes to describe like how cheesy adverbs are stop using them they're embarrassing yeah we're we're done we're done with adverbs stop trying to make adverbs happen i feel like it should be stated that there is a difference between an adverb in the flow of a description um like quickly or there are certain times when I think it's appropriate, but it should never be like he sh- he said menacingly. Like it should never be tagged on at the end of a thing. Like that is no lazy, lazy. Right. Well, it's exactly what you're saying from in that the reader should already understand the emotions and tone of the conversation from the context that you just wrote. And if they are not understanding that, it's because you need to improve your writing leading up to the dialogue, not just add these words in. Into the dialogue. Yeah. Something people do that's equally lazy is the suddenly thing, where Mm. it's like, suddenly I blah, blah, blah. And it's a transition thing where you're like, I can't think of a better way to like indicate that this changed quickly or suddenly. So I'm just going to say suddenly instead of being more creative. So I think adverbs do a lot of um, work when a writer is not like interested in doing it themselves. I think that's a good point. I also pulled a quote from the on writing section. Uh, this quote, he is talking about good storytelling, and he writes, We've covered some basic aspects of good storytelling, all of which ret- return to the same core ideas. That practice is invaluable and should feel good, really not like practice at all, and that honesty is ind- indispensable. I think, <laughs> I think I highlighted this for two reasons. The first is that I think that that's a very clear way of prioritizing what makes good writing and I agree with it but there's a second layer to this which I think Stephen King is a white man and he has been criticized in his handling specifically of uh, characters of color and black people in his writing Mm -hmm. and I think a part of it is because he thinks he's being 
authentically honest to the characters. But I also think that I wanted to just like nudge him and be like, but do you know everybody's honesty? I don't know. You know, yeah. like, you, mm-hmm. I think that's why you need editors who don't look like you and, yes. you know, readers who aren't just in your inner circle because clearly he has female writers. I've never read a book of his where I was like, oh, no woman wrote this or read this before you published it. Right. But I have read it and been like, I don't think anyone, any black person read this before you published it. Or maybe they did, but you didn't listen to their suggestions. Mm -hmm. So it reminded me, actually, I went back and rewatched Kill Bill. And uh, I love Kill Bill. Great movie. But (laughs) Quentin Tarantino has kind of the same issue going on in that he thinks that he's writing authentic, honest dialogue for his characters. But his character's identities do not reflect his own and therefore I think there's a little bit of a disconnect and I noticed it in one of the scenes and I'll try and pull the clip if I can find it on YouTube where it's two women talking to one another and they clearly have this very contentious relationship it's very fraught where one of them had tried to kill the other one and then the other one comes back in a revenge tale because that's Mm -hmm. what the whole movie is about and (laughs) They're talking to one another and they're using the word bitch like every other word. And I'm like, okay, I understand that Quentin Tarantino thought he was setting a tone for who these characters are and how they were interacting. But I have never heard a single woman use the word bitch that many times (laughs) in like two minutes. It was just like, and what, bitch, bitch, what? (laughs) I was like, why are you using that word as every single interjection for every sentence? You can, we don't need it. We don't need it. Yes. Like, and obviously that's a little bit more of a like excusable um, offense. But yeah, I mean, I think that's, it's really important. So yes, be honest, but also recognize when you may not have access into someone else's honesty or authenticity, Mm -hmm. because you may not know what that is. Yeah, actually, I had a similar thought while I was reading the the part that I actually disliked and had kind of, I took issue with was the beginning section of his on writing section where he talks about the process So he's already done his memoir and he's given like a toolkit of like, these are the basic tools that I think you need. And then he starts talking about how he thinks people should go about becoming good writers or better writers. And it was in that section where he kind of starts it out with, I guess this thesis that like, if you are bad, you'll never be good. And if you're good, you will never be great. And the greats are just like, miraculous it's genetic and unattainable yeah and and he didn't qualify himself as one of the greats to his credit he wasn't he didn't go that far and although he talks about a lot of female authors in his book he referred to like all of the greats every time he talked about them as like the Hemingways and the white men of history and I was like bro the only reason we think those are the greats is because of the patriarchy okay like jesus christ no women had a chance (laughs) like it's like the renaissance painters being like oh my god michelangelo was a genius and he may have been but there were other geniuses that didn't have a shot because they weren't eligible to become one 
So what I'm talking about here much. is systemic oppression. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, okay, clearly this was written in the late 90s. I can mm-hmm. tell by the way you are worshipping the Hemingways of the world. And you haven't, like, gotten that sense of being like, well, maybe they weren't as amazing as we were led to believe. Oh, and, but also, like, maybe they, they are amazing, and that's yeah. great. But how many amazing talents did we lose because women didn't have resources and people of color didn't have resources? So it's like, how can we possibly begin to compare when we didn't have the same amount of resources going to all of these different people with different perspectives? Yes, or, like, we weren't even allowed at one point or another to pursue something like that. Um, so and to this, I would say, Stephen King, please read Virginia Woolf's A Room of One One's Own. <laughs> yeah. So um, I felt a little bit like turned covers off by the that. topic. <laughs> and then he actually in cr- pretty quickly into that section, he, t- he does that whole thing about like, either you got it or you don't. And if you do here are some tips and I was like, mm, I don't love that. Um, well, I agree on some level, like there is a certain magic that some people have that other people don't. And that's just, yeah, of course, like I can't play basketball. That is just a reality <laughs> of my life. Um, it, it just didn't seem like a super helpful way to put his thesis of the book. It felt very like negative. If somebody picked this book up, would they not immediately assume they were one of the people who this book would help. So like, who are you really talking to? Cause everybody who's a writer that's reading this book is like, well, I'm in the good camp. Nobody's going to be like, I'm no. a shit writer and I should give up. Like who are you talking yeah. to specifically? Well, and the, it's the Dunning Kruger effect again, because bad writers will never know that they are bad. Like right. if you are truly incompetent at writing, you are too incompetent to know that you are. And so you, Stephen King, writing that isn't going to change anybody's projections of their talents. Yeah. And also, like, you're not here to really judge. Like, you've never read any of the people who your readers work. So it's, it was, you're right. It was a very uh, off-putting kind of segment. And I was just like, all right, moving on. I'm still going to read this book. Like, I don't know why you said that, though. I don't know why you said that, This guy's gross. Well, let's chalk it up to the fact that he talks about later in the book that at, while he was halfway through reading this book, he was in a terrible accident. Someone hit him with a truck. So let's just chalk it up to he wrote that section when he was feeling bad and, (laughs) like, move on. But there was another, a few pages later where he talks about, like, um when he's talking about how you need to practice a lot. Um, first, I felt like it was very boomer mentality to be like, you need to write four hours a day. Cause it was like, in what world does any millennial have four hours a day to write? Like, who, I what about a job? I that vibe because I was, well, and then also like when he was like, you know, my wife did all of the heavy lifting to allow me to write and to specifically to write Carrie because at the time he was yeah. working on Carrie and a lot of short stories to get a start. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, not everybody has a wife. Yes. So what you're saying here, and I will use that in the term of Amy Poehler, which is to say that maybe your husband is your wife, but everybody needs a wife. <laughs> and <laughs> if you are somebody who yeah. uh, doesn't have someone else who can help take care of you living your life while you're also trying to write four hours a day, then it becomes very difficult to make that work. Yeah. And he also went on to say that like, 
he thinks you need to have a place of your own, that apartments or hotel rooms or wherever are not ideal spaces to write because it's not mm-hmm. something that belongs to you. And I was like, sir, you wrote Carrie in a fucking trailer, in a like a closet in a trailer. So and in personally in a laundromat or something. Yeah. Wasn't that a part of it? Yeah. Yes. And he acknowledges that throughout the book. But I was like, so then why did you say it? Like, it is not relevant to own your own space to be a writer. And the fact that you put it in there just feels like you are so out of touch with the reality of people's lives. Sitting in your, like, beautiful home in Maine being like, and I believe you should buy a place. <laughs> like, Stephen, I think you need to stop for a minute. You've had too many Pepsis or something. I think it's very fair to say that at this point in 2000, he was still a very famous, wealthy author. And yeah. it's he was famous for about 20 years by the time yeah. that he's writing yeah. this. So, yeah, totally. I mean, he can't... I, I was not expecting him to be... Uh, in touch, so to say. I was like, no, this is definitely written by an out-of-touch person, and that's totally. okay. Yeah. yeah, but what I didn't love was that he seemed to pretend that he was still in touch mm, because of yeah. his, like, roots. Like, he, because he had a lot of hardship and, like, mm-hmm. worked menial jobs, etc. So I think that gave him an, an, like, inflated sense that he understood, and it was like, well, maybe you don't understand anymore. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. The fact yeah, that you suggested that change. I should purchase a home before I become a writer or that like that would somehow. Is maybe... that what he said? Because I thought it was I, I was maybe I like didn't catch Hold that part. But what I thought he was saying was just like you need a space where you're surrounded by things that remind you of who you are. No, it was specifically about like home ownership. Really? Um, OK, I yeah. completely missed that part. OK, I probably so just wasn't reading it closely. I'm going to read it. Yeah. The thing that stuck into me was the part where he was like, it's nice to have things around you to remind you of who you are. Because I was like, yeah, I think that's why a lot of us have enjoyed working from home. Mm -hmm. Because it's like, yeah, I do feel more comfortable when I can reach over and pet my dog. (laughs) You know? (laughs) Okay, maybe maybe that is what he's trying to say. But there's a key word in here that made me think otherwise. Mm. So he says, you can read anywhere almost. But when it comes to writing, library corrals, carols, sorry, library carols. What's a library carol? It's like one of those little booths in the library. Oh, okay. Like that you would sit to study or or write or whatever. Um, Okay, library carols, park benches, and rented flats should be courts of last resort. Uh, Until you get one... uh, Oh, sorry. Truman Capote said he did his best work in motel rooms, but he is an exception. Most of us do our best in a place of our own. Until you get one, you'll find your new resolution to write a lot hard to take seriously. And then he goes on to talk about how he wrote Carrie and Salem's Lot in a laundry room of a double wide trailer pounding away on my wife's portable typewriter. But it like he so he talks about other apartment spaces Mm -hmm. and that people have made it work in. But he reiterates that like that it should be like a home. So I mean, that's that's the way I took it. Yeah. Maybe he is saying like this is the ideal situation but recognizing that like most people don't yeah i don't know i just felt was like it It makes framed weird yeah it makes the the act of being a writer much more inaccessible than it actually is yeah i was gonna say elitist like yeah it's like i've written in 
I've written my best stuff in just like transient places, in planes, in like Airbnbs, in my apartments, you know, like in bed, like on my phone, in the notes app. Like, yeah. don't, it, it is just, you like pull over to the side of the road in your ugh, Subaru Outback, listening to a song that's made you cry for the last five miles, and you've had a revelation. Your dog is looking at you like, mom i'm scared that's how it's done okay and everybody has that communal experience <laughs> i don't understand why steven didn't write about that okay oh you're so out of touch steven uh anyway maybe i took that like too personally because i'm like a, a renter but i was like rude like i can write in my apartment god <laughs> no totally i i just took it to mean like when we're surrounded by things that remind us of who we are, we're a little bit more in touch as to what makes us in our writing ours. Right. And you should Which be comfortable. Is like probably a more generous space. reading of that. I have no idea what he was actually trying to say. Right. Uh, but yeah. Yeah. Totally. Uh, anyway, I felt that it was like unnecessary. Like could have just been like left out entirely. Like. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Well, and I also think that like there are some things that he says in the book where he says like i do x but you may also do mm -hmm. y and that mm -hmm. might work better for you but there are other parts in the book where he says no this is how it has to be done yeah and sometimes in terms of the adverbs i agreed and then other times i was like i don't know that that applies to everybody i think yeah. everyone's writing process should just be reflective of how they feel best and how they mm -hmm. can put their best foot forward while they're doing this activity and yeah. there's no possible way for someone else to determine that for you. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think that um, the the writing for a certain amount of hours a day thing was one of them for me that was like, oops. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was very much like, it's not the 90s anymore. Like, it it just felt like, like I said, such boomer advice. Because he talks about, like, stop watching TV, like, stop doing these things to, you know, waste time. And I was like, oof. I wonder what you have to say about phones now, but... Yeah, yeah. Well, and I also, I think that... Okay, I'm going to be annoying here, but mm -hmm. truthful in that, I think that's very ableist advice. Mm -hmm. uh, not everybody can do that. And it doesn't mean that your writing voice is less important because you can't sit down every single day for four hours. Like, if you have yeah. ADHD, you have ADHD. Like, yeah. You, you shouldn't have to put yourself again in a situation where you're actually doing poor work because of the conditions you set up for yourself. Yes. Yes. Well, and I think, so I was comparing it a lot to the way I work and I work in just like bursts and I am not trying to have a lifetime career as a, a writer. I would love to publish and publish something full length. Mm -hmm. But I'm not trying to, like, become a Stephen King. So that's part of why I don't feel the same way about it. But I also feel like I don't write fiction either. So that is also a piece of it where it's like I can't force it. It's this, like, state that I get into and I know the thing that I need to talk about and write about. And then I do that and then I'm done. And I can't control when that comes on or when the memories line up for me enough to be like, ah, there's the next story. I got mm -hmm. it. Yeah. So I feel like, yes, you do need to practice if you want to get better at something, but I, I just think that there are different ways of going about it than he, the like singular path that he put forward. Yeah, for sure. If I had read this book fully back in the 
like 2014, 2015, when I started it, it would have made me feel really depressed and kind of inadequate because Mm -hmm. even then I did not have the emotional energy to spend even two hours a day writing. And it would have weighed on me as this like feeling of guilt that I'm like not doing it the right way. So I just, if anyone is out there trying to be a writer of any kind and is feeling that kind of weight about like other famous authors expectations about how you should become one it's like that doesn't work for everyone and it's okay yeah yeah no i think that that's uh, a very good caveat yeah to take it from book. an unpublished author there are better ways to be a published <laughs> author <laughs> amazing love <laughs> uh should we move on to questions yes let's do it Okay, so my question is for you. As we have established, you are a writer, uh, but your interests lie in writing memoirs. Mm -hmm. And so I am curious what in this book you felt was the most applicable for a nonfiction or memoir writer, because he does talk quite a bit about storytelling and character development, which is like maybe Mm -hmm. applicable, but I was just curious, what did you feel like was? Oh, that's such a good question. Definitely a lot of it was not. So a lot of the like story development, the even like the writing four hours a day thing, like the the way he describes like plot and things like that, it's all different when you're writing memoir because you already know the plot. Right, right, <laughs> you don't exactly. have to come up with it. Yeah. And you do need to develop ways to describe your characters in the the real people in your life in compelling ways. But it's not the same. Um but the one thing that really did I felt like was good was that idea that he I've already mentioned about returning to the story mm-hmm. and and what you mentioned about theme and how you don't need to start with the theme. You need to start with the story, start with the scenario, and those themes will work themselves out as you write. And then you'll start weaving it together. It's kind of like you're, you're writing and there's threads that are coming out. And then as you keep going and revising, you're braiding. And by the time you're done, it's like, ooh, this is great. But you didn't start with a braid. Right, right. But I think the thing that I, like, really loved um, was something he talked about towards the end about, like, essentially, what is the point or what are you writing about? Mm -hmm. And I don't usually ask myself that because I get flustered and I'm like, life and God and escaping. (laughs) And it's like, ooh, no one wants to read about that. Gross. (laughs) Um, But... I, when I was like, okay, stop being so melodramatic about it for a second. Like, it doesn't have to be um, grand. Like, mm-hmm. when you take off the trappings of you trying to be cool, what is it that you're writing about? And I, so I was asking myself that this week as I was finishing the book. And it finally occurred to me that, like, I've just been writing about Ohio for years and years. I I wrote about Paris for years and couldn't stop. And then after Paris, I started writing about Ohio. Mm-hmm. I don't know why it's the place, but yeah. So I think that was a really nice takeaway that sometimes what you're writing about surprises you and you're like, it's about Ohio. What yes. the fuck? <laughs> no, that's so true. Like, I think that is, yes, I, I love that. And I uh, watched, I may destroy you, which is a TV show on HBO. Uh, can you tell that I do not write four hours a day? Uh, and <laughs> There is a character in it. She is a writer. She's commissioned to write a book. Mm-hmm. And the vast majority of the interactions for all of the characters is about consent throughout the series. 
But at the end, there's a scene where she lays out everything that she's been writing about, and she realizes mm-hmm. that actually the thing that has been running through it is something different. Oh. And she's trying to end it and uh, figure out what the ending is. And the show does something a little bit experimental where it tries out a few different endings in oh, terms nice. of her envisioning what could happen. Uh-uh. And I really loved that as both an illustration of the immense pressure that we put on creatives and also representation of this process that like some Mm -hmm. it is actually a process right that sometimes you start one place and you think you're going to end up from a to b and you end up at q and it may be better that way but you couldn't have expected it or anticipated it when you started off at a absolutely and something that i've learned because like i started this idea of like writing a memoir that was not about paris because as you know i already wrote one about paris great (laughs) delightful Um, but I started this plan to write a book that was more specifically about my own experiences, um, in 2016. And at the time I was very confident that I knew what the story would be about. And I started it when I was in a creative writing class in grad school. And now it's, it's like, what is it? Six years later? How many years? Six years? Yeah. Four? Five. Five Five years later. Whatever. Can't do math. Went to school for art, you know. Um, and not only have I not like finished this like memoir, Mm -hmm. but also like, it's a completely different thing than it was when I started. And for a few years, I felt this extreme pressure that like, I'm not making enough progress on this. Like, this is a shame, but it has occurred to me in the last couple of years that like, I'm not, I just like, don't know all the story yet. And it's just going to take me time to put it together. And, like, every, every like, six months or so, I write something that I think is, like, really incredible. And it's, like, occurred to me that this is just going to take time because I haven't experienced all the things that I'm supposed to write about in this book yet. So mm-hmm. it's, like, okay that it didn't happen on the timeline I expected and that it's not about the things I expected in the beginning. Um, so, yeah, giving yourself the, like, space to recognize that, like, maybe you don't know what the story is yet and that's why you haven't been able to finish it and that's okay. So, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So what I was wondering if was, so you've already said that you are not necessarily a writer, although you are a capable writer. You just are not one who does like creative writing. Did this book make you want to try? Um, Yes, it did. Actually, I was like, oh, I'm feeling so inspired. Maybe I'll write a short story. Mm -hmm. So I would like to write a short story. But I was very intimidated because I was like, well, if I don't know what it is, Mm -hmm. I can't start writing it. And so that's why this book that really resonated with me was, wait, no, I don't. You could just like start writing it and see where it goes. And that's a very inspiring message to me. Yeah, it is. And it's kind of like a terrifying thing. I feel terrified by it as a writer because it's like, so it just happens and I have no control over it. And it's like, yeah, it does. Yeah. It's like, you will just have a moment, the flash of inspiration, this idea for a story, this idea for an essay, whatever. Yeah. And it'll be like a couple of lines or a few images. And then it's like, what, how do I create a whole thing out of that? But then you just do it. And it's like, oh, okay, I guess I did. So it's, it is really like terrifying, but it's so exciting because it could be anything. I know it is. It really is. Yeah. Ooh, I so... love that. 
look for my short story, yes. <laughs> I guess. Yes. God, I uh, love that. Good, good. It'll be like uh, 500 words. <laughs> that that makes a short story. That's very publishable. That's what I'm capable of at the moment. Yeah. Ooh, that's exciting. Yeah. So we'll Okay, see. that's great. Uh, so any rating that you would like to give this book? Yes. So I rated this book uh, 7.5 out of 10 shackles because it reminds me of Misery and it's very creepy. And I do think that Misery is a true work of art that mm-hmm. is upsetting and creepy, but mm-hmm. has a lot of larger things to say about mm-hmm. how dangerous it is to idealize a human being. And I love it. So that is my rating. Yay. Okay, mine's pretty similar. I, I gave it 7 of 10. Um, as, as we've already discussed, I don't, I can't handle being creeped out, but I wish I could. and I love it. So I gave it a, a spooky shivers. 7 of 10 spooky <laughs> shivers. Love it. This is the equivalent of like the animated Casper is what I assume. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. Because I love that feeling of like, but then that's it. And I have to go to bed immediately. Like that's all I can take. With all the lights on. Yes. Seriously. (laughs) Uh, And holding my dog's paw like I'm holding his hand. It's so funny because I don't think anyone understands why I love horror movies. And I've had to like come out as a horror fan to totally. like so many of my friends are like what the fuck why why do you like this what is wrong with you and I'm like so much I don't know <laughs> no I just get like the images never oh I can't ever calm mm. down mm-hmm. yeah okay but. so I'm about to recommend for my pop culture pairing the absolute worst thing that you could you Molly could okay. ever watch okay. never even go near it I'm is what I'm gonna say so I can avoid it <laughs> Write it down, lock it in a chest, uh, and then hopefully avoid it forever. There is a new TV show on Netflix. It is in the vein of several different horror directors, uh, including David Lynch and uh, David Cronenberg and a little bit of kind of Hitchcock influences thrown in. It is called Brand New Cherry Flavor, and it is absolutely horrific. It tells the story of a young woman who comes to Hollywood with a short film Mm -hmm. aspiring to be a director Mm -hmm. and the producer that she comes into contact with ends up stealing her short film and the rest of the TV series unravels from there and they have this sort of symbiotic relationship which gets more and more uh, upsetting and horrifying as it goes. There's a lot of body horror, which is why I'm saying you would hate it. Yeah. Uh, it's Body horror is not my favorite, but I, I appreciate the weirdness of mm-hmm. the show and the uniqueness that comes with okay. it. Would you say it is like more, like is it as like horrifying and upsetting as like American Horror Story stuff or is it more? Like is that, is American Horror Story tame to you? Because American Horror Story is like, I can't take it. Like, I'll get two episodes in and I'll be like, why did you think you would be a different person this time around? (laughs) I think American Horror Story, it really depends on the episode slash series. It's so pulpy to me that it's not actually super scary. So I would put that at like maybe a a 
a four on a scale of one to ten. This in a lot of scenes, I really had to look away. I couldn't. I could oh. watch it. <laughs> so, what is your pop culture pairing? <laughs> um, mine is more tame because this memoir focused so much on nonfiction. That's what. Or sorry. Because this memoir focused so much on fiction, because that's what Stephen King writes, I thought it'd be cool to give an option for a book on how to write memoir. Yeah. So the actually, the author he opens the book with, her name is Mary Carr. She has some incredible memoirs that I have never read, so bad on me. Um, but I did read her book, The Art of Memoir, and it's she does talk some about her personal experiences, but it's mostly focused on the craft of writing a memoir. And she has a lot of great advice and, and I didn't feel overwhelmed by it the way I think I would have felt overwhelmed by this book if I'd read it when I was younger. I actually felt that it was in line with a lot of things I was doing. So it was encouraging and it was also like reasonable. One thing mm-hmm. that she talks about in the book that has always stuck with me is that like you, sometimes you're not ready to m- write memoir and one of the ways that you can tell whether or not you are is to like if you're writing about a divorce or something like that that has like a it's finite think about like the worst part of that story and sit down and write it and if you can't do it then you're not ready to write the book Mm, so it's kind of like you especially with something like a death or something traumatic which is what many people you know focus memoirs on you might not be ready to do it and that was like a good suggestion of like if you can write about this honestly without like covering up all of these elements to whitewash the story Mm -hmm. um then you are probably ready to write the memoir so i thought it was cool i like that that's a good piece of advice the art of memoir by mary carr wonderful yeah we're gonna produce so many writers although we yelled at everyone to stop writing in like our last episode so maybe not just like don't be a bad writer okay god just like hard pick up your laptop and be the greatest writer it's really not that hard (laughs) i don't know why more people don't do it it's really that easy (laughs) just sit down in your italian villa that you own and write for four hours a day god it's not that difficult it's really not people we don't know what you're doing with your lives (laughs) she Uh, says to herself in the mirror (laughs) Well, thanks for joining us. Mm -hmm. Join us next time for more of our bullshit.